Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. The Role of Knowledge in Moral Development by Art Middlecoff. When my kids were getting ready for high school, one of the things that uh, a lot of homeschoolers, particularly if you're doing a less uh, well-known type of model, like a Charlotte Mason model, you start thinking about transcripts, high school transcripts, and how you're going to get that ready for college. And so uh, I got a book that was um, for homeschool parents to tell them how to write a high school transcript. And I started reading it when my oldest was maybe, I don't know, 15 or 14 or 15, so I still had some time. And it was a very helpful book. <clears throat> and I got to the end, and at the very last page of the book, I saw this. And uh, I thought it was very interesting. Now, the book, wasn't, I mean, the book wasn't about character. It wasn't about moral development. The book was about transcripts. But I thought this sequence was, was very interesting because it kind of said, you know, knowledge, you know, which is actually what the whole book was about, is how do you document an, a transcript of what your child has learned? That's important, but, you know, it's not, there's really bigger, we have bigger fish to fry than knowledge is kind of the gist of it which is, uh, you know, we need, we need character. Character is the most important thing. And uh, I thought about that and how that kind of perspective I've seen in other parts of my life when I hear Christians and parents and others talk about moral development. Um, because I think moral development is a reason why some people choose to homeschool, why a lot of Christian parents choose to homeschool. And so we think about an example, you know, from my own experience was uh, when I was in college, and uh, I had this desire to go to seminary after I graduated. And I told a friend of mine that I was interested in, in going to seminary after to study more theology and stuff like that. And she said, oh, you, you shouldn't do that. You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't go to seminary because that's just going to choke your spiritual life. Uh, almost this view that it's almost like even a more extreme version of this. It's almost like um, knowledge is dangerous like knowledge could actually um, defeat character. And so um, if, if we have this goal of moral development, um, I see a lot of people like that example of my friend in college, the book on transcripts. We see this idea that, well, if, if we want to get moral development in our children, then we start thinking about things like behavior is important. We think about training, uh, action, uh, maybe... Love, maybe, is a way to help form. But then there's this thing hanging out off to the side that we don't really associate with moral development. And if anything, maybe it's actually a counter um, is almost the attitude that some people have. And uh, so as I've studied uh, about Charlotte Mason and tried to understand, well, where, where does her ideas fit in this model? And at first glance, there's a lot in Charlotte Mason's writings that seem to suggest that, that the real sort of engine for moral development are these, these things on the left, focusing on action and doing and behavior. And, uh, and in particular, uh, Charlotte Mason talks about moral habits. And if you think of habits as being something that's behavior-oriented, uh, moral habits, she lists things like obedience, truthfulness, reverence, a sweet temper. And um, so these are all habits that we love to see in our children, they're moral, and it says that uh, the cultivation of habit applies with the greatest possible force to each of these habits. So these moral qualities 
are, are being seen by Charlotte Mason as, as habits, just like other kinds of habits. And um, when she says this cultivation of habit applies in this situation, let me tell you a little bit about what she means by that. She has this quote where she says, first and infinitely, the most important is the habit of obedience. Obedience is the whole duty of man, obedience to conscience, obedience to law, obedience to divine direction. So that's great. But when Charlotte Mason talks about how to actually form a habit, there's a very well-known section in one of her books where she describes how you actually cultivate and form a habit in a child. The example she uses is not obedience or a sweet temper or one of these moral qualities, the habit she talks about how to form is the habit of closing the door when you leave a room, which seems to be this very practical, non-spiritual type of thing. And so that, that made me question, well, so the formation of a habit to close the door when you leave a room, it's through repetition and reinforcement. Do things, you know, do something several weeks in a row, enough times eventually it becomes your routine. So somehow maybe that same thing can work with these spiritual qualities. So that's kind of where, where it seemed on the surface, but I had this sneaking suspicion that there was something more to it than that, and that developing moral character was more than just this idea of repeating certain behaviors until it becomes habit. And so in my quest to try to understand this more deeply, I had the opportunity to go out to the, uh, this is the, a picture of me at the Armit Museum in Ambleside in England. And it was actually at, in Ambleside that Charlotte Mason had her teacher training school, and it's where she had the, the headquarters of her organization. And it also houses the museum or the archive of all of her writings and, and uh, documents from her organization from a century ago. And uh, so here's one of, one of her poetry volumes. And uh, so that, that was a wonderful visit. And there's something about being in a place where a historical figure has been and actually go on the same paths and see the same pieces of paper and the same books that helps history in the past come alive. And so one of the opportunities that I had while I was there was to look at uh, Charlotte Mason's prayer book. Um, the actual prayer book that she had used in the past. And the interesting thing about that prayer book, in the prayer book there's the, the Psalms. In that entire prayer book, there's, not, there's only one phrase that's underlined in the whole book. And it happens to be in a psalm. And it's this line, this I know. And so it made me start to think if maybe knowledge, rather than being something off to the side that's either irrelevant to moral development or even negative to moral development, maybe knowledge is sort of key to understanding a dimension of moral development in Charlotte Mason's model. So what is knowledge? To, to kind of probe this more deeply, I think we have to think about what knowledge is. And so I spent some time trying to really grasp what knowledge is. How do we define that? And I wanted to, to kind of go through Charlotte Mason's writings to understand how she defined knowledge. And so I searched through all kinds of elements of her writing on that word to see what she said about it. And to my surprise, I came across a lot of negatives, a lot of things that knowledge is not. So she said, well, knowledge is not a well-stored memory. Knowledge is not scholarship. And I have, I have like page and page numbers and books for, for all of these lines. Knowledge is not scholarship. She said, knowledge is not academic success. Knowledge is not reason. Knowledge is not information. 
Knowledge is not instruction. Knowledge is not training. Knowledge is not facts. And in fact, most surprisingly, knowledge is not even the same thing as ideas. So that left me really wondering, well, if knowledge is none of these things, what could knowledge possibly be? And so to really dig into this more deeply, I came up with this model of Charlotte Mason's understanding of knowledge. And the idea here is that knowledge is ideas clothed upon with facts which have been assimilated by the mind, by the mind acting on them and bringing them forth in a form which is original because it has been modified or recreated by the action of the mind. So that's this definition of knowledge. And believe me when I say that We learn not by what we see, but we learn by what we do. So knowledge, the key element is the mind acting upon them and bringing them forth in a form which is original, and that's when it becomes knowledge. So a diagram of this, if you have mind up here, this represents the mind of the learner, my mind or your child's mind or your mind. Now we have over here this this idea, your idea. This is an idea that's found in history or found in a living book or an idea that's found in the Bible or an idea that's found in nature or a scientific principle or a poem or a painting or a musical composition. But let's say it's a historical idea, something about, let's say, the the, the Declaration of Independence. Now, there are all kinds of facts about who signed the Declaration of Independence, when was it signed, and so on. But those facts are all attached to this idea, and the facts have meaning when they're associated with an idea. So what happens is the mind consumes this idea by reading a book or encountering some kind of living thing and then reproduces now as my idea. Now it's my idea. And this is why narration is so critically important to the Charlotte Mason method because narration is how knowledge is formed because once this new idea is performed, then knowledge is created in the mind of the listener. And so this makes a very important point about narration. Some people get the misunderstanding that narration is the same thing as repetition. So some people think that a narration lesson would be read a section of a history book and then try to repeat as closely as possible in the author's own words exactly what you heard. That's just repetition, But narration is an actual performance. It's an actual action of the mind where you're recreating the story from your perspective, bringing out the details that you think are important. You're expressing your interpretation, your understanding of the idea or the event. And it's that creation of an idea which always will include facts. So if I tell you about the Declaration of Independence and I tell you in my own words, that's going to include facts about the dates and the signing and so on. And I'll remember those facts. But the knowledge will have exist because I have performed narration. And it's interesting because Charlotte Mason calls narration the act of knowing. The act of knowing. And narration orally is just one type of narration. There's other types which we'll talk about in a moment. How does the mind act upon ideas? Is narration the only way? Or how do we produce a new idea from what we read or consume. Well, the first kind that that most people associate with the Charlotte Mason model is with the mouth, and that's what we call narration. So if you've ever seen a narration lesson, you'll read a a section or somebody will read something for younger children. uh, The parent will read a, a portion of literature or a book and then say, retell what you heard. 
And that act of retelling is called narration, and it's actually an extremely robust cognitive and emotional activity. And there's been a lot of research to show just how much goes into the act of narration by a child. But you can also act upon ideas with the pen. One example of this is journaling. Another example is outlining, even essay writing. So oftentimes, if you ever remember, if your own experience, if you've ever written an essay, how much better did you understand a subject after you actually wrote about it in an essay versus when you were just gathering your materials? It didn't, you didn't actually fully know it until you had to actually create a writing which explained it. Um, and then there is a third kind, which is narration of the heart. And Charlotte Mason referred to this as meditation. Now, I want to be very clear that meditation in a Christian context is not at all like meditation in the context of Eastern religions. So in Eastern religions, meditation is the practice of trying to empty your mind. This is the exact opposite. Meditation is about trying to focus your attention uh, privately upon a certain concept like a scripture or some other concept and, and think about it and contemplate it. So it's almost like contemplation is maybe another word for narration, or uh, I like to refer to meditation as narration of the heart, is how I like to describe it. So these are the different ways that the mind can act upon ideas. So once you kind of understand knowledge in this model, then a statement like this from Charlotte Mason starts to make a lot more sense in terms of the linkage between knowledge and moral development. She wrote this, if we realize that the mind and knowledge are like two members of a ball and socket joint, two limbs of a pair of scissors, fitted to each other, necessary to each other, and acting only in concert, we shall understand that our function as teachers is to supply children with the rations of knowledge which they require, and that the rest, character and conduct, Efficiency and quality and that finest quality of the citizen magnanimity take care of themselves. Now, that is a radical, radical claim, so very different from the ideas that I open this presentation with. Far from saying knowledge is important, but character is the most important thing, this is saying knowledge is the beginning. Knowledge is the, is the irreplaceable, essential foundation. In fact, knowledge in this model is so powerful that once, if knowledge is handled properly, the claim here is that character takes care of itself. So that is a bold claim. That's a radical claim. And that's something that I think we should think about because it's saying that knowledge is the foundation. Let me just show how the knowledge can have such a profound impact. First is knowledge of inspiring ideas. So inspiring ideas can promote that moral development. The second one is knowledge of the Bible. Knowledge of the Bible can promote and does promote moral development. And lastly is knowledge of Christ. And by this I mean a personal relationship with Christ, knowing Christ as we know other people in our lives. So let's talk about each of those, knowledge of inspiring ideas. So Charlotte Mason says that it is as vital thought touches our minds that our ideas are vitalized and out of our ideas comes our conduct of life. And so when she says it is as vital thought, what is vital thought? So vital really in her context means living. It's from the Latin word vitalis, of life. So what she's saying is that living thought 
or thought that is alive, when that touches our minds and ideas are vitalized in us, it is from this inspiration that comes our conduct. So in other words, the reason why we do things is because we've been inspired to do so by life-giving ideas. And yet, we do need to consider how important habit is and how habit does play a significant role in, in the method and I think in moral development. But what I would say is that habit provides, rather than being the foundation of moral development, it is a support to moral development, but that I believe knowledge is the most important element. So how does this play in with habit formation? So there's an example that uh, Charlotte Mason gives of a child who doesn't like to get up in the morning when it's time to get up. And so the challenge to the parent is, how will I treat this behavioral issue in a way that respects the child and so on, but how do I treat this behavioral issue and help this child to get up on time in the morning? And so the sequence looks something like this. The problem, the boy does not wish to get up in the morning. So you, the parent, stimulate him to act day after day for a month or so until the habit is formed, and it is just as easy as not to get up in good time. So this is kind of this simplistic, this is just focusing on behavior, focusing on actions. This is developing character with no knowledge, without that element of knowledge. Now, this is actually only a fragment of the story. When you read the full account of this in Charlotte Mason's um, book describing this point, there's actually an element that I left out. There's actually a first step. You, the parent, tell a child that the great duke slept in so narrow a bed that he could not turn over because, said he, when you want to turn over, it is time to get up. Now, let me just explain a little bit of the context here. So this is an English boy in the late 19th century. Any guess who the duke is? So it's the Duke of Wellington. And it's the Duke of Wellington who was able to defeat Napoleon. And so he's a great hero to all English boys. And so the duke actually slept on a very narrow bed. As the great duke, as this great military commander, he could have slept, he could have commandeered any home that he wanted to and slept in great big master bedrooms and so on when he was on campaign. But instead of taking advantage of those rights, he slept on an incredibly thin campaign bed. And I've actually seen a picture of it, and it looks like it's maybe 12 inches wide. And so he did that because he did not want to oversleep. That was his sense of duty. Now, when you hear that story, this great duke, the Duke of Wellington, the reason why this little boy is speaking English instead of French, his hero refused to sleep in in the morning, and to make sure that he didn't do so, he slept on a tiny little bed. Now, what boy is not going to be inspired by that idea? That's a bit of knowledge. Do you see? That's an idea. It's a vitalizing idea. It's a bit of knowledge. Now, the boy doesn't wish to get up in the morning, but he does wish to be like the hero of Waterloo. Then you stimulate him to act upon this idea. Day after day, for a month or so, until the habit is formed, and it is just as easy as not to get up in good time. Do you see the difference between these two approaches? One of them looks at the behavior in isolation. The other one focuses on a vitalizing or inspiring idea. And so another picture that I kind of like to to show to illustrate this is if the goal, if we liken kind of this idea of moral development as this rocket ship that's trying to 
escape the Earth's gravity, where is the main power going to come from? Is the main power going to come from telling your children what to do and then monitoring them and making sure that they do it through repetition? Is that the main engine that drives it? I don't believe so. I think that the main engine is inspiring living ideas. And habit is just this little rocket here. This little rocket here is just a steering mechanism. So habit is very, very important. And being that coach who the child wants to be like the Duke of Waterloo needs mom or dad to to help him to put these things into practice. But he's been inspired to do so. And it's that inspiration which is the primary engine. So I want you to keep that picture in mind as I talk about some more examples of where this plays out. So idea is the main engine. The steering guide is not going to take you to the moon. It's not going to take you to the stars, but the ideas will. And I think that this is consistent with the notion that good ideas are from above. The idea is the motive power of life, and it is because we recognize the spiritual potency of the idea that we are able to bow reverently before the fact that God the Holy Spirit is himself the supreme educator, dealing with each of us individually in the things we call sacred and those we call secular. All these good ideas, vitalizing ideas, come from many different sources, the scripture, of course, but other sources as well. When we lay ourselves open to the spiritual impact of ideas, whether these be conveyed by the printed page, the human voice, or whether they reach us without visible sign. So let's talk about the knowledge of the Bible. So Charlotte Mason wrote that we nourish our children on the sincere milk of the word, and they delight in their sustenance. We nourish them on the sincere milk of the word. So when I was in college, I was part of an InterVarsity Christian Fellowship group. And so they taught me how to do Bible studies. And so I still have like a single sheet of paper which had their, their method of Bible studies. And this is what it looked like. You basically had three steps that you had to follow in your Bible study lessons. And so it started with observation and then interpretation and then application. Has everybody seen that formula before? And the basic idea, what was drilled into my head was this is what matters. What matters is, like, when you sit down for a Bible study, you, you've got to, it's really about trying to find out what you're supposed to do, like, what behavior are you supposed to change or do. It's all about the application. And what that does is it causes us, I think, to start looking at the scripture as a manual for how to live, as opposed to a revelation from God who wants to know us and be in relationship with us. And so it raises the question in my mind, which is, does there always have to be an application? Does there always, does every time you sit down to study the Bible, does it have to result in some resolution for some new thing you're going to do differently or some sin you're going to repent of or some new way you're going to act? Or is it possible that we could be fruitfully studying the scripture to gain knowledge and ideas that will not necessarily just result in a change of behavior. So an example here is given of, uh, this is the the great German poet Goethe, and he describes how he was impacted by the scriptures. And he said, with the distraction of my life and my irregular education, I concentrated my mind and my emotions in quiet action on one point because I can in no other way account for the peace which enveloped me, however disturbed and strange were all things without if an ever-active imagination of which the story of my life bears witness led me here and there 
if the medley of fable, history, mythology, and religion threatened to drive me to distraction, I betook myself again to those morning lands. I buried myself in that first books of Moses, and there amongst the widespreading shepherd people, I found the greatest solitude and the greatest company. So do you see that for him, what he found in the Old Testament was not just a code of conduct, but what he found in the Old Testament was a source of peace that lasted through his life. He found a knowledge in the scriptures that ministered to him and stayed with him and sustained him. So it's this question that I would ask is, must there always be an action? Charlotte Mason described this notion that religion has two aspects. There's the attitude of the will towards God. That's our our actions, our behaviors. But religion has another aspect, the conception of God, the conception of God which comes from a gradual, slow-growing perception of the divine dealings with men. This repose of the soul, this fresh background for the thoughts, Goethe tells us that he got from his study of the books of Moses. Tells us, too, that he could have got it in no other way. And indeed, he tried all ways. Here, Goethe unfolds for us a principle of education which those who desire their children to possess the active as well as the passive principle of religion would do well to consider. For it is probably true that the teaching of the New Testament, not duly grounded upon that of the Old, fails to result in such a thought of God, wide, all-embracing, all-permeating, as David, for example, gives constant expression to in the Psalms. So this is such an important idea. It's basically saying that we cannot have the fullest foundation for life without taking the time to read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, to see how God has dealt with man, to understand him in a broad enough sense that it brings peace to our life. And that peace will be essential to any moral activities or moral behaviors that we wish to have in our life. And then this third mechanism is the knowledge of Christ, a personal relationship with Christ. We know that scripture says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The definition of eternal life is knowing Christ. And ways that we can know him is through meditation, prayer, experience, and faith. And so with meditation, Charlotte Mason describes the practice of meditating on Christ. We cannot grow into the likeness of that which is unknown to us. And we cannot know except by that process of reflective contemplation, which we name meditation. Do you remember when people used to wear bracelets and say, what would Jesus do? Or we say that the aim of the Christian life is to be like Christ. How can you be like Christ if you don't know him? How can you know him if you don't meditate on him? How can you know what Jesus would do if you don't spend time carefully absorbing, relishing, contemplating, thinking about the stories of the Gospels that describe what he said and did? First, we think upon him. We dwell upon every circumstance of his life, every word of his teaching. We keep him in all our thoughts. We eat and drink not only at the Blessed Sacrament, but at all times in remembrance of Him. As we meditate upon Christ, as we learn to believe on Him, to realize that all blessedness lies in sacrifice and service, in lowliness and meekness, we begin to understand how great is the conversion that must take place in us if we are to have in us the mind that was in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine how we could develop? How do you convince somebody to live a life of sacrifice and service? How can, you, how can you, if that is your aim in moral development is to train your children to aspire to a life of sacrifice and service, what could possibly motivate them to want that? 
if not through a gradual unfolding and understanding of Christ's life, come to see that that's the highest and greatest beauty that there is. It comes through the study and careful meditation upon Christ. Prayer. Now the man begins to know Christ by speaking with him face to face. Knowledge comes as it comes to us in prayer and meditation. So developing a practice of prayer. I read an account by a pastor who was describing about Christian leaders who have fallen away through sin. And he says that nine out of ten times when a Christian leader falls because of sin, it's because he has no meaningful devotional life. And if you're too busy for prayer, then you're too busy. And so in our families, we need to reflect on that same maxim. How can we attempt to live a holy life if we're too busy to pray? And then experience. Dare any man, this is referring to Christ, dare any man stand up and offer himself to the world with such words as, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the truth. Come unto me, all ye that are weary, and I will give you rest. It is in verifying the truth of these and such like sayings of Christ that Christianity consists. And all Christians everywhere and at all times have known these things to be true with the knowledge that comes of experience. And this is the knowledge which is life. And then we have faith. Our Lord here indicates the two stages of the act of faith. First is the fixed, humble, and open-minded attention And the next, the sure and satisfying conviction which comes of beholding Christ. And this is eternal life because it is to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he hath sent. When we believe in each other, it is truly that we recognize each other, know each other for better or for worse. And because we recognize, place implicit confidence in one another. It is only by observation, meditation, and happy intuitive sympathy that we know one another in this way. How do you say you know someone else? How do you have knowledge of someone else? It's through experiencing relationship with them. Most men and women we still see are as trees walking. It is only the few that we believe. It is such belief as this, intensified by every thought of him who is altogether lovely until it becomes the master thought of all our thinking, the moving spring of our being, which issues in that constant and joyous commerce between the spirit of man and the spirit of God, which is eternal life now at the present moment and reaches forward to those heavenly things which it is not lawful for man to utter. So think about how we know each other, how we trust each other, how we understand each other. That's the kind of relationship we need to have and cultivate with Christ. We need to know him. So what is the role then of knowledge in moral development? The spiritual life must be nourished upon ideas and not merely emotionally stimulated. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds With renewed vigor imparted by new thoughts of God, we are again enabled to the spiritual activities of prayer, praise, and godly endeavor. If we will fix our thoughts steadily upon Christ, we shall be surprised into such an outgoing of love and worship as we little thought ourselves capable of. So if these outcomes are missing, if there's a lack of love and worship, we need to look at the root, which is a lack of knowledge. So we need to treat the source and not the symptom. So what does the Bible say? Does the Bible reinforce this notion of the central role of knowledge? I'm going to bring up one example, and this is from Romans chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul says, How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you see the key word? The key word 
that enables us to move from a life of sin to a life of righteousness is to know something. We have to know something. We have to know that we have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and it's that knowledge that enables us then to behave rightly. A second example I'd like to give is the parable of the sower. You remember the, the sower who sows his seed, and some falls upon the path, and some gets caught in the thorns, and some of it goes into the shallow soil, and some into the deep soil. You know, the seed that actually fares the worst of all is the seed that falls on the path. Nothing happens to that seed. And what does the seed that falls on the path represent? When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So the very worst thing that can happen to the seed is that it's not understood. And what is the meaning of this word understood? It's the Greek word simiemi, which means to understand, or a deeper meaning is to know and comprehend the nature or meaning of. So the first thing to focus on with the seed in the soil is understanding. That's more important even than the thorns, than the heat of the sun, the shallow rock, and so on. It's understanding that's so incredibly important. So what does this translate into in terms of a call to action? My call to action would be to say to not use the Bible as a method of coercement and to sow ideas first and then to develop habits. So when I say do not use the Bible to coerce, I'd actually like to describe an example of a Bible lesson that I think represents the challenge that we're facing here. Uh, A friend of mine shared an example of a Sunday school curriculum for children published by a, a reputable conservative Christian source telling Sunday school teachers how to teach this very passage, how to teach children the passage of the sower, of the seed. And I'm just going to share with you a couple of highlights of what teachers were instructed to present to their children from this passage. The takeaway, the action was for the children to understand that their main job is to sow many seeds and to harvest them, to not feel bad if they fail because their seed may fall on bad soil, and that they themselves should be the good soil. And because of this passage, they should pray for missionaries, share a parable with someone, do something kind for a non-Christian, don't be ashamed to read your Bible or pray, and don't swear. And then the instruction said that the purpose of parables was so that we would know how to live, to learn what are the right things to do. And so I guess I would ask the question, does that really reflect the purpose of Jesus in giving this parable? Did he give this parable so that we would be encouraged to pray for missionaries, so that we would not swear? Is the main takeaway to focus here on how to be the good soil? Is that, is that the real main takeaway? And did Jesus teach in parables simply so that we would have a set of code, a set of rules to live by? Is that the purpose of parables? Or is the purpose of parables, the parables of Christ, to help us to enter into... I mean, if I, if I brought you here together and said, we're going to do a Bible study on the parable of the sower, and I told you as adults that the parable of the sower means that you need to be the good soil and you need to pray for missionaries and so on, would you feel that that was, that that was all this parable has for you? So the challenge, I think, is we run the risk of raising up basically a generation of legalists who know the rules but don't understand the why behind the rules. They don't understand who the real sower is and what he's intending to do. And so then we get legalists who grow up in the church and we have such a hard time teaching them about grace 
and teaching them about the love of God and the love of Christ. Because through their whole youth, we've been providing them with a list of do's and don'ts. And this is what my friend described of that particular curriculum. She said, it's a lot of moralistic cheerleading and putting heavy burdens upon children's shoulders rather than bringing them in to trust the love and compassion and forgiveness of sins in Christ, from which will come the kinds of things we are aiming at here. Those behaviors are good. We want those behaviors. But the relationship with Christ needs to come first. The love of Christ needs to come first, and that comes through a knowledge of the scriptures. And so what I would say is, don't force your children to serve a master they don't yet know and love. Instead of using the Bible as a tool to get a certain kind of behavior, use it for feeding their souls and their spirit. Jesus said, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So if we want to expect good behavior and moral development, we need to feed them first with a good treasure to fill their heart from which this will overflow. And then my second application is to sow ideas first and then develop habits. Take the time to introduce your children to living books, living ideas, things like the story of the Duke that inspire your children first to want to do the things that you're encouraging them to do. Sow those ideas, and then they will be partners with you in the development of habit instead of resisting. Charlotte Mason wrote that the mind which does not feed on poetry, history, fiction, travel, all the treasures that are bound up in books, on pictures, on the beauty of a sunset or a flower, such a mind may be acute and alert, but it does not dwell in heavenly places. I think that all of us are in this room and are homeschooling our children and love Christ enough to be here because we've found something more compelling than coercion to the scriptures. We've found a God who loves us and whom we love for his own sake because that's the highest motivation of all is when we love God for his own sake and we serve him just for who he is, not for what he can give to us. We love him not for the gifts he gives us, but we love him because he is the ultimate gift. And then, wow, you know, that's how character then starts to take care of itself. Okay, so thank you very much for coming, and uh, it's great to be here. To view the slides referenced in this audio presentation, please visit the show notes page. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.